Hello, this is Mark from the Distant Future. Welcome to Future Flying. A quick note before we begin this episode. This is one of our first episodes, and when we launched our podcast, we named it Cleared for Takeoff. Now, we had thought we had done a good amount of due diligence on the name. While there have been other aviation podcasts named Cleared for Takeoff, we couldn't find any currently active ones, at least in the English language, so we felt we had a good name for our show. Unfortunately, a couple months later, we discovered that there is indeed another English-language aviation podcast named Cleared for Takeoff in current production. And in fact, it's produced by our good friends at the FAA. Not wanting to trample on their name, we decided it best to take a month hiatus and retool our show, hence our new name, Future Flying. Aside from this welcome message, none of the rest of the episode has been edited, so you'll hear us refer to our podcast as Cleared for Takeoff throughout the rest of this show. Just note that you are indeed listening to Future Flying. Enjoy! In this episode of Cleared for Takeoff, we talked to Ron Stroop of the FAA about connecting the dots. Well, Ron, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing good. Thanks for uh, having me. And if you give me a second, I just got to do the obligatory, uh, you know, these are these are my comments and not the official position of the Federal Aviation Administration, but uh, looking forward to uh, having a good conversation around this. Thank you very much. We're looking forward to talking to you. And welcome to another episode of our aviation technology podcast, Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host, Mark Roboff. Pleasure to be with you all again. Joining me are my co-hosts, Paula Olivio, Mark D'Angelo, and Logan Johnson. Hey, Paula, you want to give a quick shout out and introduce yourself to our audience? Hello, everyone. I'm Paula Olivio. I'm glad to be here. I'm an artificial intelligence research engineer at Embraer, and also I'm a PhD candidate in computer engineering. My master's is aeronautical engineering and also computer engineering. And for the last 10 years, I have the pleasure to be working with data science and IVHM technologies. And now for the last few years, I have also the pleasure to be the vice chair of ACE G34 Aerospace Standards for AI Certification Committee. So thank you, Ron, to be here as well. Thank you, Paula. And Mark. Hello, everyone. This is Mark D'Angelo. I'm an aerospace engineer and new technology leader for SAE International. I'm a standards innovation and technology is the title. My focus areas are driving the standardization of emerging technologies such as UAS and uh, advanced air mobility and all new cutting edge technologies coming down the pipeline. I also co-chair the Airworthiness Working Group of the NC UAS Standards Collaborative, and I participate on numerous standards developing committees. Uh, my background's in aerospace engineering with a bachelor's, master's, and PhD. My work is involved uh, unmanned systems, and I love to fly with a private pilot's license. So I'm really, really excited for this podcast and this the name of this podcast cleared for takeoff. Thanks. And Logan. 
Hi, everyone. Pleasure to be here. Logan Johnson, been with SA International for five years as an aerospace uh, standards engineer supporting our Washington, D.C. office, liaising very, very closely with the FAA, uh, as well as other um, trade associations such as A4A and AIA. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Welcome, Logan. And last but not least, it's my sincere pleasure to introduce our guest of honor for our podcast this evening. That is Mr. Ron Stroop, who is a general engineer expert at the FAA. Hello, Ron, and welcome to Cleared for Takeoff. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time. We're really very excited to have you here and to talk about all sorts of wonderfully interesting things such as drones and the FAA Next Generation Program or Next Gen and the, the whole remodeling of the national airspace, as we imagine uh, soon, whether it's going to be three years, five years, 10 years, or, or within the next couple of decades, right? We'll have thousands and thousands and thousands of more aerial vehicles sharing the skies with today's 737s, A320s, cargo vehicles, and the like. Yes, there will definitely be a, uh, a uh, large, diverse uh, population of, of not only drones and UAM, but commercial space, high altitude, uh, long endurance vehicles, and of course, our traditional uh, uh, commercial aircraft and such that you talked about. Yes, going to be a very, uh, very exciting time. So, Ron, why don't you tell us just a little bit about what you do at the FAA? So as a general engineer expert, um, an expert within the FAA and uh, target uh, those complex and challenging issues that uh, come up. And some of them that we talked that we just got done talking about, which was, you know, the the handling of diverse users, integrated airspace, um, interoperability across the domains of airborne airspace, air traffic and airports and and making sure that uh, those sort of uh, work together and in, uh, in one sense, uh, try and connect the dots and identify to folks what are some of those interdependencies that that they have to uh, understand. I mean, a true system engineering kind of uh, perspective. Excellent. Excellent. And you've been at the FAA for how many years? Uh, it's over 31. Yeah. Ah, yeah. A lifer. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's funny. It's not sort of the way it is these days, but, um, yeah, but I got a chance to, um, to do many different things in the FAA, both in in the field and at headquarters, aircraft, air traffic. So two lines of business, three staff offices, aviation safety engineer, flight test engineer, uh, software technology specialist, senior safety engineer, chief system engineer, and now general engineer expert. Wow. So we're going to start with a little bit about you. And, and one of the things we're really interested in interviewing with our guests is how they how they got into the field of aerospace. Um, we chart the first you know, 20 years of all of our lives here. And, and then uh, and then my colleagues will jump in and, and ask a little bit more about some of the really interesting technical uh, programs and concerns you've worked on and are working on today. But to start off with, so um, I understand you were born in Erie, Pennsylvania. Correct. Uh, the coast of Pennsylvania. <laughs> yes, yes, right on the lake. <laughs> right now, I've been there once. Um, and I know that uh, I, I, I went to university in Pitt, uh, Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And uh, I was always uh, curious always to explore my surroundings. Uh, you know, in Western PA had uh, lot, lots, to, lots to explore. Went up to those great beaches, did you? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you guys do have Wegmans grocery stores. 
Yes, we do. (laughs) You can't, you can't overstate how nice that is, right. Compared to what, what most people get. (laughs) Yes. uh, They are busy up there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and what did you, what did you study in college? Yeah. So in, in college, um, I went and, uh, got a bachelor of science in avionics engineering from Parks College of St. Louis university and, um, started out in the aerospace engineering, um, side of the house. Thermodynamics just, uh, just, uh, set me for a loop, uh, eventually moved into the avionics side of the house and, um, and graduated in 1989 with the bachelor of science in avionics. Awesome. Thermodynamics. Yeah. Yeah. I just wasn't, uh, that's, my mind wasn't able to wrap myself around that. Uh, that was tough to sit down and study. For me, it was discrete math, but I know you, you were, you were planning, um, behind, uh, or, or behind the scenes, how you got into, uh, aerospace from a career perspective. And most of the folks that I know who, uh, joined the FAA have joined from industry, but, uh, I understand that you, uh, had, uh, or were part of a program, um, that recruited uh, folks right from university. Yeah. So g- growing up, um, I had a lot of, uh, family pictures of me at air shows. My, my father was big with aviation and took me to a lot of air shows and somehow just ended up into, into that degree. When I got out of uh, park college of St. Louis university, yeah, I was, uh, the the offer that I took was into the Chicago aircraft certification office. Mm. The, the manager there, um, had a program that he was, that he had just started because the FAA was always known in the aircraft certification world. They would go and get, um, folks from the industry retired or, or whatever that just that had the knowledge to, to really support the certification or regulatory side of the house. He started a program and he brought five of us in five of us students in two propulsion, two structures, and one in the systems branch, which was me. And, um, and, and taught us from the ground up based on, on that. I mean, I spent the first two weeks reading the FARs. That was the assignment, read the FARs and try and understand what, what they're saying. Right. And, and, uh, somebody like me, I sort of, uh, you know, started to outline the FARs to understand what was going on. But then you get um, a mentor, you know, and you sit in in the meetings with the mentor and then the mentor lets you look at a few things and then the mentor, you know, says, hey, well, comment on this and then provide them to me. And and then, um, you know, it's like, hey, here's this report get your comments and send them to me to, and then eventually, you know, here's a simple company and start doing it. But also he put in the funding to allow us to travel. So we weren't just looking at documents uh, around uh, a desk, but we were going out to the manufacturer and seeing how it was built, seeing the assembly line, seeing the testing that was going on. Then we go out with our inspectors and our flight test pilots and see how it got installed in the aircraft and take part in the flight test kind of thing. So we got to see um, a lot of different things. They also allowed us to find training that we wanted to, to find. So like I would find some uh, electromagnetic interference training and stuff. It was almost a year and a half before I actually went to the FAA's orientation course 
which is supposed to be the first course uh, uh, an engineer coming into the FA should go to within the first month or so of, of coming online. It was a year and a half. So, you know, and that, and that kept up. And so we got to do uh, a lot of different, um, a lot of different things and, and see it. So you weren't looking at the drawings, but you were actually going out then and, and seeing it built and all that. So that's fantastic. Yeah, it was. Getting your hands dirty and getting the opportunity to travel is, is, is really, I know it's helped me build perspective and knowledge and expertise. I've had a really an accelerated clip. You know, it's something I recommend to anyone who would be um, coming into any field, you know, get out there and see different places, different people, different, different businesses, different point of views. Right. And, yeah, different business models, you know, um, and um, it was very interesting that uh, to see how things um, uh, came together that, uh, you know, it's one thing to read it, but then to be out there and actually see in action, because even at school, you know, you're, you're learning from a book, basically, for most of the time. And so... Um, yeah, it was the hands-on was, uh, and, and that's the kind of thing I, I tell people, you know, get out and, and see that what you are doing um, at the operational level. Absolutely. So you mentioned your father took you to a lot of air shows. Talk to me a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about, about you know, how your parents shaped your view of your, your love for aerospace. You said your, your father was involved in the industry. Yeah, he was a he was a laborer, but um, where he could get down to the Pittsburgh or Buffalo or Cleveland or Erie um, and get out to an air show. So there were always pictures of me sitting in a cockpit or sitting in the in the cargo area of an aircraft. And so my mother and father really, you know, um, really helped uh, establish hard work, provided an environment to learn. Um, they made sure, you know, for for somebody who was a laborer. Um, Back then, not making a whole lot of money, he put me and my two sisters through college, through private school and college for us to get our degrees to be better off. Um, always around the air show. So so my love for aviation just um, kept going. I actually wanted to, to be a pilot. I actually tried while I was in college through um, the military. Uh, I had gotten through most of the testing until my eyes and I had uh, some uh, slight red green color blindness. And, um, you know, it was the, uh, what do you see on this? Nothing. No, no, look harder. No, I don't see anything. Um, you know, and, and, and back then really didn't have the internet. You know? So it was pilot in the military or nothing. Right. You don't have like today where you can, Oh, well, let me see if I want to be like that or see that or look at that video. And so that was sort of the, the flying side of it. But I, I learned too, I took some private lessons and, and it was, uh, got out in front of me kind of stuff. And I learned years later because I coached lacrosse, uh, youth lacrosse. And so I was at a conference for lacrosse to get my certifications. And I happened to be having coffee one morning and a gentleman, older gentleman sat down next to me and we started talking and found out he was a fighter pilot. And so he started talking about it and, and, and the light sort of went off because he talked about flying this aircraft, keeping track and, and going down to his instruments and checking once in a while, but keeping the outside, you know, and, and it, the light bulb went off on me. I would always be watching the instruments and I would check outside once in a while. So I was so busy trying to get these seven or eight instruments all to, to line up that 
Um, so it became clear that it was good that I became an engineer and not a pilot, um, because, uh, I was completely opposite of what you needed to be. So is the OODA loop is observe, orient, decide and act, right? The, the observe comes first, observe the surroundings and then orient on, uh, yeah. yeah. And he was just checking, you know, doing a quick glance at his instruments, but getting back out there, I was always like this checking and coming back and. So yeah, it's, it's fine. You know, it's fine, but you, you learn, you, you have your conversations and, and you learn. Of course. That, so. so Mark, Mark, how do you fly? Well, I'm a VFR pilot. So as an engineer, as Ron will understand, I can't be buried in the cockpit, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I actually started out as a uh, flight simulator pilot before I started taking some real flying lessons before I got my private pilot's license. So, so I was, really much engaged in the instruments and, and making that thing fly and, and fly into the numbers and watching my vertical speeds on landing and well, checking my air speeds, my altitudes, everything. But then when I got out through the real flying, it's just like, Hey, you gotta be looking outside. Well, and it was, it was fun because, um, you know, later on in, in Chicago, I remember being at a meeting actually in Washington, DC. And I got a phone call from our flight test engineer in Chicago. And he said, Hey, you want to, you want to go to flight test school? You know, and this is like on a Thursday, Thursday afternoon. And I'm like, yeah, he says, okay, you need to come back tonight, get your travel thing because on Sunday you're going to Mojave and you're spending two weeks out at Mojave, um, at flight test school, going to be a flight test, uh, engineer. And, um, and off I went and, and it was, it was the, uh, the best time I've, I've ever had. And, and, and what happened was we had three flight test pilots in our office and one flight test engineer. And a, every three years you had to go back and get requalified. So guess what would happen every year? One of our pilots had to go, but we had to take a flight test engineer. Well, the flight test engineer had to go every year because we had three pilots and he, and so he convinced the office manager based on my background and, and what I was doing to, to send me. So I was sort of the backup flight test engineer. And when I came back, they actually gave me some, you know, some of the, the uh, less risky kinds of things to go out and, and be then as a flight test engineer um, on some flights. So it, it, did you get to fly in anything extra, extra cool, interesting, or special? Um, I wouldn't say any, nothing on the fight. I mean, it was the typical commercial aircraft, uh, auto lands kind of things, augmentation systems in like an Augusta, uh, rotorcraft. I did pass up one time the opportunity to go and do some acrobatic, do a cert flight for an acrobatic aircraft. Um, I was busy uh, and figured at some point there'd be another opportunity and that never came back around. And, and to this day, I'm like, I wish I would have gone. Oh, yeah. I'd love to go up in an extra or something. Just uh... exactly. Exactly. So well, it's any day's a good day when you can get up and fly. So I'm curious because you, you, you talk about your career in avionics and then in flight tests and, uh, you know, working on certification on the aircraft, um, where I and my colleagues most know you from and work with you most closely is not on airborne systems at all, but on ground-based systems. And I think today you're most focused on what is the next generation 
ecosystem and infrastructure look like for the uh, you know for for air traffic management transformation. So, uh, if you want to take us through you know those thirty one years at the FAA, what was the pivot point for you from working on on more of an aircraft uh, centric world to a ground systems world? Yes. Yeah, so probably um, mid nineties after all of this aviation safety engineer and flight test pilot kind of thing, I was also um, because like I said, I was one of the first system engineers hired as part of this program. I had a strong software background, software, almost computer science uh, part of the avionics, we had the, you know, the Fortran and the Ada and the COBOL and the, uh, and so we had a lot of languages that, uh, that we had. So part of when I was over there, I basically became the software person because most of the avionics folks were tied to the hardware side of the house and didn't know. And things like DO 278, RTCA standard 270 or 178 was, was, was going on. And so I became part of that. And and the FA about that time started a path that you didn't just have to get into management to to go higher in the in the uh, in the GS schedule, but they created these senior engineers and technology specialists. And so I became um, because I was associated with software, I became one of the first software tech technology specialists in aircraft cert. And they actually then moved me down to Texas as the software technology specialist and would work directly with the chief scientist and technical advisor for airborne software. And back then that was Mike DeWalt. And they moved me down there because at that time, Bell Helicopter was about to take the V-22 tilt rotor and begin to start creating the civilian version. And they wanted their, the first software technology specialist to be there in that office to work that on a regular basis. Now, some things occurred with the V-22 back then that sort of slowed that program down and therefore really delayed the civilian side of the house. Um, and so while I was not doing that, I was on the road doing a whole lot of other things, at which point some of that was national uh, efforts, which got me noticed by the chief scientist and technical advisor for air traffic software, who seen what we were doing with the airborne side and being able to reduce the failure rate of critical failures in software with 178 and asked me because he knew I was really from Pennsylvania and I had just left Chicago and was down in Texas said, hey, you want to get a little closer to home? Uh, we'd like you to come and do the same thing on the ground systems as they're doing in that. So I came up to Washington and worked for the chief scientist for uh, air traffic software. And I started the whole process of DO 278 and reaching out to the vendors and reaching out to the cert authorities across the world uh, from the ANSP side of the house and the regulator side of the house. And we developed DO 278. And I did some work with software software safety and security. And there's all kinds of papers that have, uh, that have published over once I got into that um, on those sort of subjects. That eventually led to uh, being asked to come over and work uh, the safety work for air traffic um, as a senior safety engineer um, for about a year or so. And then I was asked if I would be interested in one of these chief system engineer jobs for air ground integration. Uh, 
And so I started off on that and that's where we created the, the integrated framework. And we published a paper called connecting the dots, um, where we tied in the airborne, the airspace, air traffic and airports and, 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 Cause we would go to meetings, right. And and the ground person would just be like, Oh, I just got this radar. I've got this. And we'd be like, okay, but does the aircraft have the equipment so that the radar can see it? And what airspace are you flying them in? And, and what procedure does that airport have that requires that surveillance that can you see, you know, so you had started to connect these dots and, and, um, and so became the chief system engineer. And then about a year or two ago, um, they've moved away from the chief system engineers and they just have us as general engineer experts. So now I'm working things like emerging technologies in the application of uh, the NAS. That's awesome. You know, we Aviation, I've always found personally, is a uniquely and enormously siloed world, which, which is great for those of us who, like you, look to connect dots yeah, I, I, I often get, uh, you know, I often get, uh, you make things complicated very quickly and I'm like, well, they kind of are right. I mean, <laughs> you, if, by time you get a, a, a multi-million hundred million dollar program and find out you forgot about an interface or look, that's what we were trying to say. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, the whole teaming uh, is going to have to be worked at because we're seeing that sort of with some of our uh, kinds of things with uh, enterprise monitoring. Um, oh, absolutely. And um, we've actually built a capability internal to the FAA with FAA folks. We have some contractors that support us, but it's, it's not the contractor's tool. It's not the contractor that we give data to the contractors just sort of help us code and, uh, and come up with operational threads, um, for like ideas that like I may come up with. They're like, well, hey, hold on, let us go see if we can figure this out and kind of stuff. And, um, and there, there's many third parties out there, but you know, this way, uh, we have the data, we control the data, uh, we can protect the data. Plus there's some data we can never give to a third party. A third party you're, you're talking about like a flight radar 24 or, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's, it's, uh, classified data, right. But being internal, it allows us to be able to, uh, uh, make some connections that others would never be able to see because it's already behind our firewall. So we can have some enhanced uh, applications and outcomes that the others would, would never see. And so well, you always hear You always hear stories one every now and then there's some military aircraft that doesn't turn off their ADSB transponder that winds up on flight radar 24, right? People have talked about how that's a thing. And then um, you always hear about, although I haven't, I haven't seen uh, an example of this firsthand, not to say it doesn't exist of, well, yeah, you want to, you want to track uh, VIPs in your business jets. Maybe, maybe, you know, you, you want to get uh, inside information on a deal that's about to go down. So if you knew where business jets were typically housed and what VIPs typically use them, right. You could sort of piece two and two together, but obviously you wouldn't be able to get that from flight radar alone. You'd, you'd have to have a system that tries to connect lots of dots together. Although those systems aren't necessarily difficult to build. 
No, but you, you know, you have spotters around the airport today that, right. They just keep track of what flights are leaving and what their end number is. And, and if somebody turned that into a business, then, and you can figure out where they left and where they are and whose aircraft it is, you can begin to do it. But now today you're right with ADSB, which is why they're, there, you know, I, eventually I, I think that the whole privacy and encryption is got to come into play, which I think is going to, you know, I don't know what the impact is going to be on those third party that right now are getting all that information out in the open, uh, which is another reason why I, I talk about um, our internal enterprise monitor, because we would have all that capability already. Logan knows I just got a new VR headset, actually my first VR headset um, to play around with. And one of the things that you can do is you can get onto uh, Google Maps VR and fly around uh, the satellite 3D imagery and actually even go into Street View. So I was flying around uh, airports and I guess when Google had uh, mapped LAX, uh, someone had parked their Boeing 747-8 individual business jet or, or BBJ, right? Um, at the, I guess it would be the southeast quadrant of the airport. And I was thinking to myself, who, who in their right mind would first and foremost buy a 747-8 BBJ? And, and at the same time, if you're going to buy one, who in their right mind would settle for one? You know, which would be arguably the second most ridiculously large, oversized and ostentatious right aircraft you could probably, you know, fit for yourself. Why not buy an A380? <laughs> go big, go big or go home. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're going to settle for second best. Well, you know, the queen of the skies might be good enough, you know, it flies faster. I do believe um, a Middle Eastern VIP or uh, government officials have just sold their 747-8. Maybe it was that one. Yeah, maybe, maybe it was that one. I don't know how many Boeing actually built. You think of any any other government leaders who have seven eights? I mean, the United States one isn't even uh, isn't even out yet. No, I think there were like maybe only 30 passenger aircraft built out of that model. The majority of the 747-8s are freighters. Yeah. I actually have been on one twice. I walked through the UPS freighter. That was at Oshkosh uh, last year. Um, the sad thing is when we emerge from COVID, the only 747s people will be able to fly on will be the very few 747-8s that airlines have bought. I think there are only like three or four airlines. Yeah, I know Lufthansa is one of them. Lufthansa has a couple. I've been on a couple. On, I've been on Korean 747-8 a couple of times. And uh, maybe that's it. Maybe there's an airline in China that operates them. But uh, you know, it used to be yeah, Delta United have retired their 744s um ba which is you know a stalwart 744 operator they had a ton of them they're retiring them all i have a great story about that when last year whenever i was in uh what was it last year maybe it was before that but um i had a choice of flights to come home through london and i was in france at the time toulouse i was coming back from toulouse and I said, I'm only going to get two hours of sleep if I take the early flight. But I took the early flight just so I could get out of Toulouse and to London just in time so I could take the 747 flight to Chicago. And I thought, you know what? This could be, this will be my first time and this could be my last time riding on a 747 400. 
And I'm glad I took it. I had like no sleep that trip. And I was like, I got to get two hours of sleep the night before, get up, get to Toulouse, get to London. Just so I've done all that. But uh, I'm glad I took it because I got to ride the queen of the... I tell you what, it was a very nice ride. Very smooth, very spacious. Actually, I asked the flight attendant if I could uh, get a tour of the aircraft. And they says, yeah, look, you know, let me get my stuff done and I'll come right back and I'll give you a tour. So the flight attendant gave me a tour of the aircraft and I did get to go upstairs, got to look around up, up there and, uh, you know, walk around the aircraft. It was pretty awesome. So 10 years ago, uh, my wife and I went to Tokyo, Japan on uh, 747s on Delta. And I had just started um, a massive, this is when I just started my yearly massive amount of corporate travel. And uh, very early on became wise to how you maximize things like frequent flyer programs. So um, we flew in business class on these 747s uh, with points both ways. We made it a point that we'd fly out on the upper deck and we would fly back in the nose because, you know, the way the, the, the cockpit's positioned, it sits, you, know, you have the nose is all passenger capacity. The cockpit then is above the main body of the airline in that sort of airplane, you know, with that, that hump space. Right. And then behind the cockpit um, is uh, more passenger space. So uh, the upper deck is a very nice place to be uh, if you ever have the opportunity to fly on a 747. Uh, obviously, in most cases, it's business class seating, but not everywhere. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's much quieter. It's much uh, more uh, sort of personable um, than sitting in a, in a, you know, three, four, three wide body cabin. The nose is another experience altogether, right? Especially when you, you realize that you're actually further a front of the pilots on the airplane. <laughs> uh, but that's a lot of fun. Anyway, um, back, back to the interview questions. I'm going to rope us all in. Um, cause we, we have about uh, half an hour more to go. So Ron, you mentioned DO 178 and, and DO 278. And for our audience members who are unfamiliar with the world of aircraft certification, what that refers to are the industry standards, uh, that define means of compliance for how you certify on well, the DO 178's case, uh, airborne safety critical software like an avionics system or fly-by-wire system. And in the ground case, uh, safety critical software for air traffic management systems. Um, so uh, a number of us on this podcast are familiar with DO 178 because we're all involved in the AI standardization effort uh, to create a quote unquote DO 178 uh, for AI or a means to uh, certify a means of compliance for the certification of AI. I'm not sure as many of us are familiar with 278. Um, can you talk a little bit about the need to create a ground-based version of that uh, of that standard? Um, but if you could talk about some of the, the functional real-life differences between certifying ground-based software versus certifying airborne software. Yeah. So, you know, when, when we started out with that work, um, we first tried to see if we could just use the same document, 178, and then utilize um, uh, policies and procedures within the ground side of, of the acquisition process to address any um, any sort of differences. And as we went through that, there were... Um, as you know, the biggest, the real big difference um, on there is the different assurance levels than what 178 um, sort of has. There's a, 
assurance. We ended up instead of A, B, C, D, and E, we ended up with assurance level one, two, three, four, five, and four is slightly different than what's in uh, 178. And the big thing that drove that was we had more room on the ground to do different things. So the the big thing is having mitigation components in the design or, or and or architecture aspects of, of a ground system design that would allow you to to build something possibly to a lower lower assurance level on the ground because you could have dual independent and a dual redundant or there were just different things in the architecture that we could do because we had more room on the ground than what you would have on on the aircraft. So that's really the big sort of difference. The other thing is we also we also developed a document around um, COTS um, that that provides some guidelines for the acquisition side of the house for how to, to deal with that. And so th- that's that's really what ended up driving us having to go to DO two seventy eight. But most of the most of the um, things that have come out after that in terms of model based and 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 object oriented and, and things along those lines um, are are standalone documents can apply to both. And um, I'm not sure right now whether whether we need two separate documents for AI machine learning or whether one would be sufficient. The key is really for the FAA to understand what objectives they need to get out of that document, as well as what that means across the uh, regulatory and cert authorities um, at the international level that, that we need to get. And will that be delivered by that document? Um, or could we, through our various internal orders, uh, with reference to that with certain exceptions, without having to potentially create a whole separate document, especially if 90, 95% of it is, is the same, is the same kind of thing. But, you know, um, we're, we're very early in that process to, to know, um, what that is. And, and there's a lot of stuff, I think that, uh, everybody still needs to to do with with the standards one of my things is we should be able to produce standards based on the output of various research that's being done and so we're not seeing you know a whole lot of research or we're seeing we got to go do some research to, to to sort of answer some of these questions well if you're going to do that what does that do to the time frame for for the development of the standards or are you going to develop a standard and put it out there to to sort of go through some demo and testing so that the output of that can come back and and improve upon the standard before it becomes an official means of uh, one of the official means of compliance. It speaks to the, the, I mean, the challenge of these documents, particularly the first version of DO-178, which again addresses how you certify software in an airborne safe control environment. The first version of that was written in the 1990s. And, and one of the biggest challenges uh, for these two documents is keeping up with the pace of technological change and maturation. 
right? So back in 1990, no one knew what processor CPU technology would look like in 20 years, right? The idea that we'd have not dual core CPUs, but 16 core CPUs, right? Um, and, and nor did anyone foresee what type of programming language environments would exist or how people would handle memory management and other um, sort of you know, at the hardware type of concerns in more of an automated fashion. So, um, you know, how, how you uh, accommodate newer systems, methods, and equipment right, for the development of your safety critical system uh, over the years has been a challenge, right? As, as, as folks don't have the time to dissect to the level they did, uh, systems like C and ADA on the language side or um, Intel 46, uh, 486 processors, right, on the hardware side to say this is how it's all going to work together. Right. So, you know, for me, um, one of the things I see is you have today's system built off of a set of requirements that gets allocated down into hardware and software development. Right. And that feeds then the system. So what I haven't seen a lot of um, discussion is you actually now have that third leg of that sort of graphic, if you think about it, which is the machine learning uh, uh, development process. Right. But and and that's not driven by requirements. It's driven by a set of data. Right. Hopefully the data is shaped whole from the requirements. It, it, it should be. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure a lot are talking about that. Right. Because, well, well, let me get back to that one first, because once I've got this third leg, I've got to figure out how this machine learning development works with the hardware development, works with the software development and all feeds up. I don't see that. Now, that's one of our lower or one of our other subgroups that eventually will I, I see coming together that's going to have to address that. But to me, if if you figure that out, then whatever technique or technology, just like, you know, when we were doing software back then, like I, I named off a few software programming languages, right? That DO-178 wasn't set up for just ADA, right? So when an applicant came to us and we said, okay, well, what software are you using? And they told us whatever software, we didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, DO-178 isn't designed, you know. So we just sort of did that. And we're having those discussions today in SAE G34 with the applications and driving down to a technical solution. Well, if I've got an application A that's tied to a technology X and I built the standard requirements around that, and now you know I've got the standard, but applicant comes in and says, I've got application A, but I got technology Z that standard may not be applicable. So how do you up-level some of that to say, where does that application and the, the different technologies types and, and risk classifications now as a, as a certification engineer, I can, I can make much more use of that standard better. So now, um, what was the other area I was going to come back to? It was the, it was the, oh, so the data, right? I go to a lot of symposiums and they're, they're about what data do I have and what can I glean from that data? And in reality, like you said, it's got to be driven from requirements. So to me, it's, I have this application. What are the decisions that I need that application to help me with? And what data do I need to make that decision? That then becomes the requirement that should drive the, the development process that, that's doing that. But I'm not sure 
that's always going to happen. I have a feeling, oh, you, you got 400 days of air traffic data. Boom. Just let's just shove it through this and see what see what we get. Versus, and this gets back to a, a paper I wrote about mission effectiveness. You know, what is the what is the problem I'm trying to solve? If my if my problem is traffic flow of diverse users, what are the kinds of decisions that do I have to make to solve that? And then what data do I need to make that decision? And that becomes my requirement for the development process. And I'm not sure where we're thinking that way right now. Allow me to be an advocate for uh, for dissuading folks from that uh, other line of thinking. Here's two years worth of engine vibration, temperature, and pressure data. Have at it. And and the problem you have data scientists who say I don't I don't need to think about requirements, right? Because because I have a system that will help me figure it out for me. And uh, yeah, there's some examples. Um, if you're if you're talking to the most pure of AI shops, um, you know, and 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 some of the largest AI compute companies sort of have folks that follow this line of thinking, right? They have some good examples to go by, right? Uh, a great example of let 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 the computer magically solve the problem by giving it enough data is natural language understanding. Um, Siri works and Alexa works and Google works today through um, these, these automatically trained models feeding on massive amounts of data. No one had to set deep level programmatic requirements for how uh, language is interpreted and understood right, uh, by computers. That wasn't always the case. Right. And there's nuance there. Now, how many times have you asked Alexa, does she know where her friend Siri is? And what did it, what did it answer? Right. So now I'm thinking, okay, I've got a Boeing aircraft and it's, it's got an Airbus aircraft. It's got a Gulfstream aircraft, you know, what, what, how, how are they built? Right. Um, and how's that all going to integrate kind of, I mean, that's the ex- extent, but my, my son does this every time he comes, he asks Alexa questions about Siri. There are stuff that always will get pre-programmed for the smart Alex out there, but, but on predictive maintenance, right? I mean, I've seen this approach fail firsthand. When we talk about requirements versus the models, and now this gets a little technical, right? But they're one in some cases, they're one and the same. A physics-based model for predictive maintenance uh, program imbues requirements, right, of what you're trying to actually go after in a way that reams of data never can. And when you take a data-first approach to solving a complex problem, such as airborne predictive maintenance, right, using that as a standard for something even much more complex, something uh, autonomous in nature, you, you got a few data scientists who, after a month, shrug their shoulders and say, well, we couldn't find predictability in the data. Well, and I think there's value to to both paths, right? I mean, one may reveal uh, relationships that you didn't know you had. The the other one um, gets me to mission effectiveness very quickly. I also think that that is a path when, you know, because one of the other uh, challenges that I think we face is all of this data and the network and the bandwidth, which is just 
feeding data everywhere, right? This IoT kind of world. Whereas if I, I have an application that's based on a series of decisions that got to be made and I know what the data is, I've reduced that bandwidth requirement that I have, which may save us a little bit. Because, you know, you have system today, right? I mean, I'll, I'll talk to engineers like remote maintenance kind of stuff. And they say, oh, you know, that system shoves out all kinds of data. We just throw it on the floor because we only need this little bit. And I'm afraid this gets to the IoT and E and and kind of stuff where we're just we're just shoving everything down pipes and the bandwidth we're having issues, you know, you end up with issues with bandwidth, like, you know, 100, 100, 150 people and they're all got their video up. It's things slow down, right? Well, there's some good news here. So I, I'm going to I'm going to pull I'm going to pull the room. How much data? All right. So consider it the pre-COVID commercial aviation flying fleet globally. 30,000 aircraft from the A380s down to regional jets. How much data do you think the global commercial flying fleet generates? Before we give an answer, I'm going to ask Paula and, and, and Mark and uh, Logan. I'm thinking a terabyte of data per aircraft, potentially. Per day? Gigabytes per day? Terabytes per flight. <laughs> the average aircraft. How much does the average aircraft generate per day? You're talking about like 25 transport aircraft? Yeah, part 25 large transport aircraft. I say maybe maybe two terabytes at the end of the day. Okay, terabyte. So Mark D'Angelo has a terabyte per aircraft. Okay. Paula, you, you actually work at an airframer making such aircraft. All right. Any work in AI and data science at that airframer. So what's your answer? Um, nowadays, I think it's gigabytes because of the recording of the sensors and things that we already have from this E2 generation. But uh, I also agree with Mark D'Angelo. We intend that it will be increasing for terabytes. Okay. All right. Very good. Ron? Okay. Okay. So I'm cheating because I do this trend analysis that I've been doing since 2009. And one of my trends is big data. And it says right here, uh, let's see, data analytics across operations and maintenance is being pursued by Boeing, GT, Teledyne, Delta, Rolls-Royce. Boeing predicts a 140-fold increase in the annual data generated by airplane from 6.9 terabytes in 2010 to one petabyte in 2030. Aircraft generate 3 to 10 megabytes of data per flight hour. Okay. And engines can generate 25 megabytes. Okay. That's an interesting statistic. I wonder if that's a marketing statistic. Maybe. Because I have a very different statistic. But before I, before I share, Logan. I was uh, saying the same thing as Mark. Uh, one terabyte per flight is what I assumed to be accurate. So my, my, my statistic comes from a very good friend of mine. Uh, at uh, Teledyne. And, and the reason why Teledyne, I think, is in a very good position to have accurate data is that they supply the majority of digital flight data acquisition units to the commercial flying fleet, both on the 737 and on the A320 and on a number of wide-body aircraft. And, uh, and according, according to my friend at Teledyne, the answer is 30 megs. The average commercial aircraft flying in the pre-COVID world generates upwards of 30 megs of data, not per flight, but per day. Now, is that, is that how much is recorded or how much is generated? 
Well, that's a very good question. And I will argue that it is a splitting hairs question. Aircraft data that is that is generated but not recorded arguably isn't uh, generated at all because what what the data frame on the aircraft is configured to do is to get the the data from the components the airline or the airframe or OEM wants. And not only that data gets stored uh, through, gets transmitted through the digital acquisition unit and stored on a compact flashcard that is that is then taken from the you know, QAR, quick access recorder. So you get into the, you know, the bits and bytes and the pieces of this. Now, most of those compact flashcards have a maximum file size of maybe 64 gigabytes. So even if you have the capacity to generate a terabyte of data per flight, <clears throat> storing that onto a removable uh, medium, right? Especially a medium that uh, tends, you know, historically hasn't had the largest file size quantities, right? It's, it's another matter altogether. Yeah, the aerospace industry is never that far ahead. I mean, they're still loading, they're still doing updates on uh, three and a half inch floppy drives. Indeed, exactly. So even even though, yes, yeah, so, the, so the modern, the, the newest platform, 787, Right. And and 350 have the capacity to theoretically generate terabytes of data per flight. Right? But still, most of that data gets gets transmitted onto the same QAR or, or DAR, quick access recorder, data access recorder architecture. Right. Which gets gets put on the same right, compact flashcards. And and the infrastructure for really managing the terabyte of data just it doesn't exist yet. And where it does, it's very expensive to operate. I mean, think about data transmission from aircraft. It's it's mostly today still a cars. A cars is VHF. It's a it's an analog transport medium, right? There's nothing, and, and and it's very very expensive. So until we have ubiquitous satellite communication for uh, streaming aircraft data, which we don't have because most of most of the commercial world, and again, so speaking again about the part 25 commercial world era, right, most of the efforts in, in satellite streaming are not necessarily for you know, the airline or for the crew, but for the passengers, right? So that we can all have Netflix, <laughs> which you know allows then uh, the airlines to rip out seat back IFE to save a buck. So, yeah. Long story short, I mean, we're 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 a ways away, I think, from you know reaching this world that a lot of us, you know, in our day jobs speak about. So, anytime I hear, oh, you know, the, the you know, this 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 airplane is generating terabytes of data per flight, or we're getting all this data back, you know, from uh, yeah, you know, from these predictive programs, I take it with a very heavy grain of salt. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that it can't happen. Um, I think arguably in most cases it isn't happening and the infrastructure doesn't. Well, and, and you're right there, Mark, right? Because if when you read this, that number of 6.9 terabytes up to one petabyte, that was the annual data generated by airplanes. So my my statement that I read uh, next the next one says aircraft generate three to ten megabytes of data per flight hour and engines generate 25 megabytes. So that's right in your 30 megabyte. That's closer. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, and, and then it goes on to say it can cost up to about $100 to transmit one megabyte of data over a cars compared to a fraction versus wireless cellular. But you've got to put that frame uh, You've got to put that network in place to be able to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're going to stop right here. That'll do it for us on this episode of Cleared for Takeoff. We'll be back in just a couple of weeks with more from Ron in part two of our Ron Stroop interview. Until then, we hope you stay safe, stay happy, and stay well. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Logan. And we all hope to see you back here again with us really soon. Cleared for Takeoff is a product of the SAE G34 podcast team. The theme song for this podcast was written by Annie Roboff and Beth Nielsen Chapman. The views expressed by the hosts of this podcast are their own 